Amen. Amen. Over the course of the next four weeks, I'll be leading us through a sermon series here at Reformation. So the readings might be a little different than what you expected to see. And what, the reason we're doing this is because we're specifically going to be looking at our mission statement here at Reformation. Now, mission statements are funny things. Oftentimes they're created by a small group of people and then completely forgotten. Sometimes they'll show up on church newsletters or the church website. Ours is in both. Sometimes pastors and church council members will memorize the mission statement just so someone knows it. Reformation's mission statement was created several years ago by many of you who are sitting here this morning. I'm not going to put you on the spot and ask you to recite it. Hopefully, we'll all learn it inside and out by the time this sermon series is over. Here's what it is. It is printed in your bulletin, but in case you were curious, the mission statement for Reformation Lutheran Church is as follows. By God's grace, we are disciples of Christ, reaching out and welcoming all. Now that, friends, is a good, clear mission statement. Not too long, not too short, not too specific, not too vague. Just like Goldilocks and the Three Bears, it's just right. But here's the thing about mission statements. If all you ever do with a mission statement is printed on your letterhead or in your bulletin, it's not actually doing you any good. A mission statement is meant to clarify your mission. They're meant to direct and lead and guide and simplify. They're meant to provide churches with a rudder, a lens for which to view the work that we're called to do. If this is what we say our mission is, then it should help us figure out where to spend our time and our money and our energy. But if we're going to do all of this work, then we need to pause and consider just what our mission statement says. And so over the next four weeks, we'll be going through the four parts of our mission statement. Week one is by God's grace. Week two, we are disciples of Christ. Week three, reaching out. And week four, welcoming all. Let's get started, shall we? We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 20 this morning, and I've titled this sermon, By God's Grace. Please pray with me. May the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O God. Send your living word to walk amongst us now, to challenge our assumptions, to set our hearts ablaze, and to make us whole again. Amen. By God's grace. Now that's a phrase that gets thrown around a lot in churches. We tack those words on to all sorts of articles and prayers and gatherings and, yeah, sermons. But what are we actually saying when we state that it is by God's grace that we are here today? What are we saying when we mention that grace has brought us this far along the way? Perhaps grace is an unfamiliar term to you, or maybe it's one of those things that you've heard many times but never really fully understood. I remember when I was in Sunday school, growing up, the teacher would ask all sorts of questions of the class, and because I wanted to be seen as the best Sunday school student, I would always be the first person to raise my hand. And I'd say, oh, 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 pick me, pick me, pick me. And the teacher would call on me, and truth be told, I wouldn't really know what the question was at all. I just wanted to answer it. But I knew a lot of church words because my dad was a pastor and I spent all my time at church. And so I wouldn't even really listen to the question that was being asked. 
I would just decide in my head which churchy word I was going to give as a response. And there were lots of good churchy words that I knew, right? Ooh, discipleship, mercy, faith, and of course, grace. Grace was probably my go-to answer, truth be told, because it's a word that covers a lot of ground. The reality is, though, I didn't actually understand what that word truly meant until about 10th grade. You see, I'd heard it all the time in church. I knew it was a good thing, but I had no idea of its actual meaning or significance. Because in 10th grade, everything really changed for me. Now, I know I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again because it is so essential for me and for how I understand God's grace. You see, in 10th grade, I remember early in September, one of the first days of school, walking into my third period math class, when the principal got on the loudspeaker and said, we wanted everyone to know that there's been a terrorist attack in New York City. This was September 11th, 2001. Now you know how old I am. And the rest of that day was spent in those classrooms watching the news, processing what was happening. Now, I grew up outside of Albany, New York. So these attacks literally hit very close to home. I had friends in my class whose parents commuted down to New York City who were wondering if their parents were okay. On top of that, my town actually was a military base. And so all day there were these constant reminders as planes flew out of the military base, one after another after another, just reminding us that something dramatic had taken place in our world that day. And I kind of went along with all of it, not sure what to make of it, processing in my own way. And then that night, right, because nights when all the wheels in your head start spinning, that night as I'm lying in bed trying to fall asleep, the weight of the world kind of fell upon me. What did this mean for the future of our country? What did this mean for the days ahead? As a young man, did this mean I was going to be drafted and have to go to war in a couple of years? Did this mean that another war was going to start and the world as we know it would end? I had remembered always hearing that if there was a third world war, well, that would be the end of it. And so all of this swirling in my head, I became really worried, really anxious, really upset. Truth be told, I was lucky enough to be a 10th grader who hadn't really encountered my own mortality yet. It was that day that I realized that life had an expiration date, that we didn't last forever. And so with all this swirling in my head, I went into my parents' bedroom. I'm like, hey, I'm really upset about all this. I started to cry, not even really able to put the words together for what I was feeling. And my dad, who was a pastor, paused and said, Nate, you're going to be okay. It was very simple, but it was what I needed to hear. He reminded me that in my baptism, God had claimed me as God's child forever. He pointed to one of those scripture posts that was on my parents' walls, a little artwork And it was Romans 8 where it says, For nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing, Nate, can separate you from the love of God. Not war, not the end of the world, not terrorist attacks, nothing. And now, my dad was a pastor. He had probably told me this way more than I had wanted to hear up until that point. But for whatever reason, on September 11, 2001, those words finally took root within me. It finally meant something to me 
to hear about God's grace. It wasn't just a Sunday school answer. It was real and it was meaningful and it changed my life. As I was struggling for the first time in my life with this idea of my own mortality, at that very moment, God's grace became real for me and it changed me forever. You see, there is such gratitude when we encounter and understand grace like this. There is this immense sense of well-being that overtakes you. Even if the world is going to end, we're going to be all right. Because that's what God has promised. It changes your life. I know it changed mine. After that moment of realization on September 11th, my faith became so important to me. I couldn't help but live from a place of gratitude for each day, for each moment. I couldn't help but see new purpose and meaning for my life. God loved me. God was watching over me. Even if the world came to an end, God had promised me that everything was going to be okay. Amazing grace, they say. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Yes, yes, grace is something amazing But there's a problem, too. Not with grace, but with us. When God's grace shines upon us, we hear those words of forgiveness spoken, those words of hope, and we know deep in our souls that God loves us no matter what, and it's a beautiful thing. But but, but, but what happens when we see graciousness extended to, to someone else? Well, that can be a bit more difficult, can't it? Jesus tells us a parable like this in the Gospel of Matthew. We read it here today. Let's look at it again. It's Matthew chapter 20. It's on, oh, I didn't check the page for you. It's in your New Testament. It's on page 19 in the New Testament in your pew Bibles. Matthew chapter 20. Let's hear this story again of how grace can be both a really good thing, but something that confuses and upsets us. Look at verse 1 in Matthew 20 for me. Just at the beginning, Jesus begins by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like this. And so that's always a cue for you to realize that Jesus is telling us a story so that we'll better understand how God wants the world to be. The kingdom of heaven is like this, Jesus says. And then he goes on to tell this great story about laborers who are hired in the morning, and then some are hired in the afternoon, and then some in the evening. But then when it's time to be paid, the ones who are hired at the end of the day... The ones who did just a little bit of work, they get paid a full day's labor. And the laborers who are hired at noon, they also get a full day's pay. And the laborers who are hired in the beginning of the day, they get a full day's wage. Look with me now in your Bibles at verse 11. And just watch how this interaction plays out. And when the laborers who were hired at the beginning of the day received their pay, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who bore the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And the landowner replied to them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me, or are you envious because I am generous? Ooh, are you envious because I am generous? Those are fighting words, church. 
This is exactly the problem that Jesus was encountering in his ministry. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the high priest didn't like that Jesus was generous to the tax collectors and to the prostitutes and to the lepers. They didn't like seeing people who disobeyed the religious rules openly accepted and loved by Jesus. And isn't that often the case with us today, too? Are we often envious because God is generous, generous to someone else? Right? It's great when the grace of God shines upon you. We rejoice and we sing. But when that grace gets applied to others, we start to grumble a little bit. Well, are we really sure that they belong in our church? Oh, are we really sure that they've done enough to deserve that position here? And this, friends, is the problem. Because when we become envious of someone else, when we covet what we do not have, in that moment, we have become completely blind to all the blessings that God has given to us. That's what's happening in this parable. The landowner is certainly being very generous with the individuals who he hired in the afternoon. They worked for only a few hours and got paid as if they'd worked the entire day. And as we know, the workers who were hired at the beginning of the day, they grumbled about all of this. But why? In the beginning of the parable, it says very clearly, a landowner went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Okay, pause there. In those days... It was a very common practice for people seeking work to gather in the marketplace, in the town square, where everyone was. And you would gather there in the morning just hoping to be hired by someone. Hoping that you would get a day's work today so that you could feed your family. People didn't live paycheck to paycheck. They lived day to day just hoping to find work. And so for someone to come along and hire you first thing in the morning, that's the best you could hope for. You're going to get a full day's work, worth of work and work of pay. And so for you to get hired first thing in the morning, that's the best you could ever ask for. And yet, at the end of the day, it's these workers who got hired first thing in the morning who are all upset. Notice that the scriptures tell us this very clearly. They say in verse 2, the landowner and the laborers agreed upon the usual daily wage. It's not a contract, but it's close. This is what was agreed upon. And then, of course, when the end of the day comes, they're upset because they see someone else getting more. I I imagine the interaction going like this. It doesn't say this in the parable, but we can play with it a little bit. You've got these people who were hired in the beginning of the day, and they say, hey, 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 did you just see how much money Larry got when he started working at noon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you see Steve over there? He's only been here an hour, and he just got a full day's worth of pay. Do you realize what that's going to mean? We are getting paid today. That's right. If Larry and Steve got that much, then we're going to get, I don't know, twice as much of a daily's worth. That's right. That's right. I'm having steak tonight. Oh, can't wait. But of course, that's not how it plays out. Those workers got just as much as Larry and Steve and everyone else. But let's be clear, the workers got exactly what they had agreed upon at the beginning. And the fact that they get upset about all of this is really troubling because it's clear that they envy what they don't have. And in their envy, 
They've become blind to what has already been given to them. The laborers woke up that morning just hoping that someone might hire them. But then in the end of the day, they're grumbling because they didn't get more money than what their contract had stipulated. And that's why Jesus doesn't want us to become envious when God is generous. Because when we let God's gracious action towards someone else upset us, we lose sight of all the ways that God has been generous to us. Now, that doesn't mean that good Christians can't get upset. That's not what I'm saying. There are plenty of things to be upset about nowadays, church. God is on the side of the lowly and the weak. God cares about justice and righteousness. And so it makes me pretty angry when we have Christians who tell me that a privileged, rich judge with a 31% approval rating deserves a lifetime appointment because there isn't enough evidence to convict We aren't talking about sending him to jail. We're talking about whether or not he's fit to be one of the most powerful judges in our country for the rest of his life. Yeah, I'm pretty angry about this. But I digress. The point is that when we get angry, whether it's because of the current events or because God was generous to someone we don't think deserves it, the most important thing we can do, church, is recenter ourselves on God's grace. God woke you up this morning. God gave you the gift of another day. God gave you food to eat and a roof over your head. God forgives you when you sin. God knows the hairs on your head and has a plan for your future. God is going to be with you even after you die. Even if the world ends tomorrow, God will be there for you. That's called grace, friends. An understanding of grace reassures us and anchors us so that we can keep doing the work of God's kingdom. By God's grace, we are here today. And by God's grace, we get to be Reformation Lutheran Church. We get to tell others about the goodness and mercy of Jesus. We get to tell the world that God stands on the side of the oppressed and the lowly and the forgotten. By God's grace. That's where we begin. It's where we're called to live from each day. Center your hearts, church, on the richness of God's blessings. Be mindful of all the ways that grace has gotten you this far. Because whatever might be coming down the pike, you can be sure of one thing. God's grace is what's going to get you through it. Amen.